Hi everyone, welcome to the latest episode of Lecture Theatre. With us today, we have Tim Bernard, an Associate Professor of History at the National University of Singapore. Tim's early research focused on the history of the Malay world and on the film industry here. But in recent years, his work has taken a turn to the environmental history of Singapore. His new book, Imperial Creatures, will come out sometime later this year and will focus on the history of animals on this island. Thank you so much for being with us, Tim. No, thank you for having me here. So Tim, tell us more about your life story. How do you end up becoming a historian in Singapore? Well, I grew up in the state of Kentucky in the United States. And uh, at, my father was an academic. He was a professor at the University of Kentucky. And I have uh, one older brother who's 12 years older than me. And he also became an academic. He was a professor of literature at the University of Kansas. And so in my own childhood, it was just normal to be around academics and, and an academic atmosphere. You know, being at the university, going to my dad's office, things like this. I went as an undergraduate to the University of Kentucky, and I studied, I was a major in anthropology and biology. And when I was getting ready to graduate, I, I really had not thought beyond my last semester. And I had no idea what kind of job I would want and, and, and such. And it was the mid-1980s. And in that last semester, I uh, heard of opportunities to teach English in Indonesia. Oh, wow. Okay. And so I signed up. And it was very easy requirements. The, they, all they required was that you be a native speaker of English mm-hmm. and have an undergraduate degree. So I had that, (laughs) or I was going to have that. So I graduated, and uh, two weeks later, I was in Palembang, Indonesia, taking intensive Bahasa Indonesia classes and teacher training courses for two months, essentially. And then I was assigned to uh, Universitas Riau, the University of Riau in Pekanbaru in Sumatra, where I taught agricultural lecturers English so that they could qualify to pass the TOEFL, hopefully, and go to America and get uh, master's or PhDs under the sponsorship of the U.S. Agency for International Development. Oh, wow. Okay. So while I was on Sumatra, I became increasingly interested in a place I had no understanding of. I mean, I, I was a typical suburban undergraduate in the middle of America who did not know anything about Southeast Asia, and then a month later, I'm living there. <laughs> and, and so as I uh, was going to work and just living in this society that was very alien to me, I, I wanted to learn more about it. And so I just began look, uh, studying more about the culture or you know, reading up, meeting people in the town, uh, asking them questions. And then eventually I learned about, uh, oh, wow, you can go get a master's degree in Southeast Asian studies and things like this. Then influenced my work. So what was it like being a Southeast Asianist in the 80s and 90s? Because it's post-Vietnam, but mm-hmm. obviously Ben mm-hmm. Anderson, James C. Scott, mm-hmm. doing very important theoretical work mm-hmm. with Southeast Asia, or Southeast Asia as mm-hmm. a empirical base. So, yes. how, I mean, what, what was it like being in the middle of that? Well, Southeast Asia had a very important place in uh, 
area studies at the time because of the Vietnam War. Uh, during the Vietnam War, uh, the U.S. government had begun to realize they didn't have enough people who were knowledgeable or understood society. And so they started a series of scholarship programs and, and other support to try to create people knowledgeable in other cultures. And so, for example, when I was getting my master's degree, I received uh, what was called a FLAS, a Foreign Language and Area Studies Scholarship. And that paid for my entire master's degrees, both of them, as long as I studied Bahasa Indonesia. And so I studied Bahasa every semester. I even went for a special program, a, a summer, an entire summer, where I was in East Java, studying at a university there. And so this helped me develop my language skills, but also helped me live in the society I was interested in. And now this all came from government support. Now, much of this has waned in the period since. I mean, uh, since 911, of course, focus has uh, shifted more toward the Middle East or Islam, and to the detriment of Southeast Asian studies. And so it's not as popular as it used to be. But in the 80s and 90s, you had uh, theory, you know, people focused on uh, theories such as Scott or Ben Anderson or even Clifford Geertz, who were known globally mm-hmm. for their work. Nowadays, uh, probably not so much, <laughs> you know, for Southeast Asianists at least. Now, so in recent years, your work has taken the turn mm-hmm. to it kind of environmental history, mm-hmm. or what's been called kind of the history of the non-human. Mm-hmm. So how do you become interested in those issues? Well, a lot of it has to do with uh, living here in Singapore. When I first arrived here uh, in 1999, I had in hand a dissertation and, uh, you know, on, on 18th century Sumatra, which subsequently became a book. But living in the society, you see different sources, you see different perspectives. And that first manifested itself in a shift I had in research on Malay film. So, for example, just watching local television or going to local stores, you would see VCDs of P. Romley movies or various Malay films made in Singapore in the 1950s. So I could use my own interest in Malay culture, Malay language, and just learning more about the society I lived in by watching these films from the 50s and 60s. And so in the first few years I lived here, I became a, just a very uh, interested collector in these things. You know, I bought hundreds of hundreds of VCDs wow. <laughs> uh, of early Malay films and would watch them. And this then uh, uh, turned into a series of articles and book chapters on Malay film in the 1950s and 60s and how it was related to uh, issues such as... Uh, uh, gender in uh, the period, uh, decolonization, on modernization, and other important things. Now, that idea of focusing on a different source, such as these uh, 1950s films, then came to become a kind of a, a way of looking at the society in the sense of looking for new sources. And beginning in the year 2010, I began teaching a module, a course at NUS uh, titled Sources of Singaporean History, in which the students go to the archives, go to the National Library, go to the library at NUS, and they 
try to you know, you know discover everything they can about a particular year. And what that meant as the instructor for the course is I also had to you know, <laughs> had to know what was in the archives and what was in the sources and, and such. Okay. Now I also taught another class called environmental history. Oh, okay. And I've always, because of my own background in biology, it was more of ecology and uh, anthropology. I, I was always interested in the environment in this region. Even my dissertation had environment in the subtitle, you know, Society Environment, Eastern Sumatra. <coughs> now, the thing is, when I was teaching an environmental history course, I could teach all these things you know, about global environmental history, all these things. And there was nothing from Singapore. You know, I, I wanted to offer something to the students that could read about their own society. But there was very little on offer, frankly. And so I uh, combined with my own uh, kind of rummaging through the archives with the students and my interest in environmental history, this came together with me becoming more interested in the idea of, well, if I'm going to complain that there are no environmental histories of Singapore, well, then... I should, do, so. I should do something about it. Exactly. I, I, I need to do something about that. So I just began by uh, slowly putting together the materials I could find. And a good example of that would be, uh, I, the first thing I did was I edited a book titled Nature Contained, uh, Environmental Histories of Singapore, in which I went out and thought to myself, what would I want to see in such a book? And then I went to people I thought could write huh. a chapter for that. And so if you look at the book, there are essentially no historians in the book because no one was doing this type of work in Singapore. So there's, for example, Nigel Taylor, the director of the Botanic Gardens. Uh, there's a man named Antonio Dempsey, who's actually a geographer, uh, a private, you know, works for a company here in Singapore. Cynthia Chow, who's an anthropologist at the University of Iowa who uh, wrote her honors thesis and master's thesis in the 1980s on farms and orang laut oh, in Singapore. And so, I, in other words, I went to anthropologists mm -hmm. and botanists and geographers and a variety of different specialists, not historians, essentially, and asked them to write a history piece, which they all embraced and, and did, a, I think, a very good job. In my own case... I, I wrote two chapters in the book. One was on tigers in colonial Singapore. I did with a good friend of mine named Mark Emanuel. And that was an example of me going into the archives and finding these unusual mentions of tigers, whether it be in newspapers, whether it be in uh, government documents, and then, in a sense, putting together the picture of tigers in the 19th century. The second uh, chapter is on a history of the Raffles Museum, uh, in a sense, the, what is today the National Museum. But originally, it was a combination of a natural history museum and an ethnographic museum. And I wrote about the natural history side of it, using uh, records from uh, London, using records from Singapore about the history of the collection. And, and so that book allowed me to begin my initial exploration of these sources and then also put it down on paper so that I would have also something I could assign students to yes. read <laughs> for the class. Uh, you know, it's a little self-serving, but it, it worked. And uh, the book worked pretty well. 
And from that, and a friendship I de- developed with Nigel Taylor, who's the director of the Botanic Gardens, I began to realize through Nigel's chapter and my own friendship with him that, wow, there is a lot of material about the Botanic Gardens. And very few people in Singapore realize the important role it played in society. You know, it's not just a park, yes. if you will, that people visit on Sundays. And so with uh, the coming of the uh, World Heritage mm-hmm. uh, accolades and such, uh, I taught an honors class from NUS at the Botanic Gardens. Ah, in which the honor students went to the Botanic Gardens, and then Nigel and I were the teachers. So you had a historian and a botanist who taught them uh, about the Botanic Gardens wow, okay. and the history. And students and they worked with sources, and, and they worked with the various sources in the Botanic Gardens okay. archives. And they wrote papers, and they also wrote little. Uh, one of the assignments was to create a guide, mm-hmm. like for tourists if they wanted to visit certain aspect, like a history of rubber in the gardens, or a history of orchids, or whatever. And uh, through that module, through Nigel's interest, through the World Heritage thing, I decided to then write a history of the Botanic Gardens, which I did. It's titled Nature's Colony. It came out in 2016. And uh, in a sense, each step of the way, it's just when I finish one project, I think, okay, what's the next one? Mm-hmm. What would make sense or what am I interested in? Because each time I try to follow also what sustains me. Mm-hmm. If I don't like the topic, it would be hard to finish it. And so when I finished the edited book it's and then did the class with Nigel, it kind of pulled me toward the Botanic mm-hmm. Gardens. After I finished the Botanic Gardens book, to me, the great, uh, the funnest chapter to write in that book, there's a chapter about a zoo that was in the Botanic Gardens. from 18, uh, It existed from 1875 to 1905. First zoo in Singapore. And I was very interested in that. I thought, well, if I've already done the flora of Singapore, why don't I do the, the fauna? fauna exactly, the fauna. And so I uh, began working on uh, the history of animals mm-hmm. in Singapore. Now, the thing about it that I've also liked is when you do something like the Botanic Gardens, people have written books about the Botanic Gardens, and it's easy to divide it up chronologically. Yes. You could do it by various directors. Uh, I decided to do it by very uh, important moments or important plants. For example, the development of rubber, or ah, reforestation okay. of Singapore in the 19th century, or orchids. Kind of, or modern Singapore, it, you know, it's a, it is chronological, but there, it's kind of eras in which a particular aspect of the gardens dominates instead of individuals. But the point is, there's relatively easily understandable chapters or breaks. Yes. Okay. Whereas when you do animals, there is no real understandable, <laughs> I went, and that's what I liked about it. It was a bit of a challenge to come up with new, like, it's not necessarily 1819. Yes. It's not necessarily 1867 when the East India Company gave over to yes. the colonial Because office. that makes no difference. It makes no difference to an animal. To an animal. Exactly. exactly. And so what I, it interested me was I had to gather all the material, whether it be in newspapers or government documents or writings or scientists, geographers, and then kind of put it before me and go, okay, what stories come mm-hmm. out of it? 
And I like that because it challenged certain chronological breaks, mm-hmm. certain themes. And so you could write what I consider to be a, a, a relatively fresh approach to Singaporean history over the last 200 years because the normal markers are not there. Because then animals are, in some sense, yes. uh, ahistorical, a defied historical. Yes, and, and if anything, yeah, you know, yeah. exactly. And in the book, it ended up, there was a lot of overlap in certain chapters. Because, okay. for example, a lot takes place between about 1880 and 1900. But there are different themes and different stories to be told. And so that, that's what I liked about it. it, was, it, it within all of this, whether it be 18th century Sumatran history, Malay film, botanic gardens, animals, some of it has to do with my own uh, curious nature, but also my inability to focus long-term. <laughs> you know, in other words, I, I, single, I, subject. I, I, I single subject. I move around to different things. Which keeps me interested, and as well, you know, I'll I'll focus on something for a few years, for mm-hmm. three, four, or five years, and then okay, I'm done. I'll move on to something else, and that's fine. <laughs> so let's talk a bit more about imperial creatures. Sure. And what what is the big argument that you want to make mm-hmm. in that book? The the big argument in the book is that we uh, this idea of looking beyond the normal markers in Singaporean history. It's the idea that if we actually take animals into consideration, we can think about the entire imperial enterprise, if you will, in a new manner. Uh, Traditionally, in Singapore, historiography just focuses on this idea that Raffles arrives in 1819, and then they establish a port, and then all history is economic and political. Now... Uh, that that is important. <laughs> Can't deny that. But we keep repeating this tale over and over and over again to the point that I, I I'm finding I get less and less out of the tale each time it's told. Yes. And so by focusing on animals, we'll be able to actually question, okay, what was the real impact of imperial rule? What did it mean to the society? And, uh, to give you an example, when imperialism began in 1819, you had a massive change in the landscape. The, when the British came in, they promoted agriculture, plantations, which within 60 years deforested the entire island. 92% of Singapore lost its forest wow. cover. I mean, Singapore is more green and forested today than it was 130, 40 years ago. They literally cut everything down for plantations. And it was replaced mainly with lalang grass, Mm -hmm. which is not very useful (laughs) or productive. And this really created an environmental change in the society. And it doesn't mean you're, it, it's not British, it's not Chinese, it's not Indian or Malay. It's that humans came and yes. changed this environment. And that meant you had a loss of biodiversity, mm-hmm. plant life, mm-hmm. animal life. Uh, there are estimates that 73% of the animals in Singapore became extinct. Oh, wow. Because of, and this all happened in the 19th century. This is not something new. Yes. This is all because of the imposition of colonial rule. And so what you uh, imagine or begin to realize is you had an island that was covered in forest, 
jungle. Uh, a very small community, maybe up to a thousand people on it, uh, near what today is the Padang in 1819. And within a century, they had cut it all down, transformed it, destroyed the biodiversity, and simply replaced it with animals and humans they wanted that could fulfill the needs or the functions of that imperial society. Whether that means importing Chinese labor and Indian labor, whether it means importing horses and cattle or pigs or whatever, dogs for pets. Um, you, you replaced the native life with foreign or alien life. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, there were different cultures in that, sure. <laughs> but, but I think by, back to the original question, <laughs> by focusing on animals, you can uh, get a better appreciation of what this meant. Mm-hmm. Because then also, as the imperial government begins to impose control over this society, they issue regulations, they monitor, they control these animals, just as they would eventually would with humans. And, and so what you have is the development of bureaucratic structures. And by looking at it through the stories of animals, I think you gain a better perspective or appreciation of what that meant. That's an interpretive question for you. Mm-hmm. So do you think it's possible to write and recover the experiences of animals and non-humans themselves, or is that always kind of going to be filtered through the lens mm-hmm. of humans? This is a very commonly debated question right now in human-animal studies, is can you write the history of an animal and from their perspective? I, sorry, I am. I follow on the human side of okay. things. Uh, you know, I, I'm a human supremacist, <laughs> if you will, in the sense that because I believe this is all interpreted through mm-hmm. human eyes. Uh, the stories are recorded by humans. Mm-hmm. And so it's to fit into a, uh, our understanding of the past and how society functions. So in, I basically would say you can't write a history from an animal's okay. perspective there are interesting attempts at it, and I find them very good. But at the end of the day, they're about telling you about the human humans, society. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Or maybe to reframe it as kind mm. of humans being animals too. And, yeah, and, yeah. And, and that well, the the, the subtitle of the book yeah. is uh, uh, a, a history of colonials of humans and other animals mm-hmm. in colonial Singapore. So yeah, humans are animals, but. Uh, because it's humans who are reading the yes. book, if you will. I'm gonna, I'm sorry. I'll give them a little bit more. I'll give, I'll give yes. them a little bit of higher status. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, what sort of sources and archives do you use in writing imperial creatures? Uh, well, uh, there's a, a range of sources uh, because in environmental history, you need to call upon uh, not only historical writings and archives, but ge- ge- geographical, natural history, uh, sociology, anthropology biology, a, a range. And, and so I uh, gather materials from, for example, in Britain, from uh, the, Nash, uh, the British Library, but also the Natural History Museum, uh, the Welcome Collection, which focuses mainly on medicine. But, okay. you know, uh, and are these diaries, papers, and they, they, And they were diaries okay. of uh, people who stopped in Singapore, okay. Uh, the Natural History Museum, I actually looked at specimens sent from Singapore wow, you know, okay. in jars or dried. 
and and look through uh, ascension books. You know, in mm-hmm. other words, the record of the the animals being sent. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've been to the uh, London Zoo where they have mm-hmm. records of when animals were sent from mm-hmm. Singapore. Which was founded by Raffles. Which was founded by exactly the London Zoo was founded by Raffles, and uh, <laughs> yes, and uh, whereas in Singapore uh, there's an excellent uh, resource called newspapers.nl.sg. Yes. I believe that's the website newspapers.sg, in which you can essentially Google, mm-hmm. uh, you know, keyword search, and that helps a lot <laughs> because if you type in a word like dog. You, and particularly a, a rabies, for example, you can then narrow it down to particular periods and go, oh, okay, there's all these stories about rabies. And then once you kind of narrow that down, you can then go to the uh, archive, you know, the government records mm-hmm. and look in those years and find writings. So there's colonial office, office records, which the NUS library wonderfully has all PDF'd. So mm-hmm. as long as you're a member of NUS, you can go in and download the PDF. Okay. And then read through them from the comfort of your home. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't even have to go to London for that. And uh, there, so there's newspapers. There were colonial office records. There was uh, records from the, the National Archives here. And and so you you end up – oh, there's also travelers' accounts and memoirs. A lot of travelers in the 19th century, when they would stop in Singapore, would write up about, oh, I saw this animal mm. or you know, this was happening. And so you had a lot of uh, kind of firsthand accounts, witness accounts of what was going on. And, and so, and then you combine that with medical reports and, and various things that are happening. You bring this all together and you can then create your story. But one thing I like about that is you have to go to a, a number of different institutions. Mm-hmm. You can't just go to, for example, the National Archives in Britain. Mm-hmm. Uh, the story is there, but the complete story is elsewhere. Is elsewhere. You need to bring together these different sources. And I, I personally like that challenge, if you will, or that task. No, I, 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 yeah, I find it boring just to go to the same place all the time uh, and look up materials. Mm-hmm. Whereas in some of these smaller archives, or just if you go to the Natural History Museum in London, they have very uh, good archivists. But when you tell them what you're working on, they go, hmm, that's interesting. You know, it almost interests them to the, or the point where they help you. <laughs> and, and so it's good. Also, I've taught courses at NUS mm-hmm. on environmental history of Singapore. And students have directed me toward, they've said, oh, I found this story. Oh, wow, okay. And I was like, I did not know that story. And they, you know, I thank them in the book. This is a teaching research. Yeah, exactly. And, and, the so, and so these honors modules or classes I've taught, and the opening up of archival sources being having them PDF to the newspapers.sg, uh, the the advent of the digital camera yes. has changed things. When I did my dissertation research, I had to spend months in the Dutch archives mm-hmm. looking up uh, Sumatran materials and slowly typing them out. Things like that. Now you go into an archive with a camera, and boom, 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 you you have everything. Mm-hmm. You just, uh, you know, you go home each day and you have hundreds of photographs and you just have to collate them and put them in file. The, the problem is you feel like you're done where you actually have to come yes. home and read everything. Don't fool yourself. And but it. It's yeah. easier to gather, though. But, you know, in other words, the gathering process has changed from taking months, if not years, down to literally weeks, mm-hmm. which means you then can spend more time writing. 
and and uh, shaping and working and developing your ideas, which which is great. Yeah. So I guess I want to go back to something you said earlier about how the right interdisciplinary nature of your sources, but also mm-hmm. the, the whole project. I mean, what I mean has that been challenging at all? Trying to write a history or write a story that um, ultimately speaks to different disciplines. Yeah, yeah. The, uh, this became more of it, not so much with Imperial Creatures, the animal book, but with the earlier book on Botanic Gardens. I, I will say my knowledge of animals is much greater than my knowledge of plants. <laughs> oh, interesting. Okay. And my knowledge of orchids is non-existent, or okay. was, I should okay. say, was non-existent. It came to a point where in the Botanic Gardens book, there is a chapter on orchids and the development of hybrid orchids in Singapore. And going in, like the first day, I started, okay, I'm going to start gathering materials, going to work up this chapter. I realized, man, I don't know anything. I don't know what I'm doing. So I had to go out and buy uh, several books on orchids. I had to go down and talk to orchid specialists at the Botanic Gardens. And they schooled me. You know, they, they, they taught me, okay, this is what's important. This is not. This is, okay, this is good. And I, I slowly mm-hmm. developed an understanding of it. And then eventually, that cha- I uh, went to a colleague of mine at NUS. He, um, he's in, the, uh, in another department in my faculty. His name's John Elliott. And he uh, has been uh, a longtime leader, if not the president, of the Singapore Orchid Society. And he uh, kindly read the chapter for me mm-hmm. and said, nope, wrong, <laughs> wrong, okay, this is correct, okay, yes, oh, I didn't know that. You know, there were certain things he didn't know, but there were a lot I was wrong. <laughs> you know, and he helped me. He, he helped correct things, and, and that was good. But that's also one of the things when you're doing environmental history is you need to be open to mm-hmm. other people because yeah, so yeah. nobody knows everything. Yeah. And, and so, for example, in this, for, for the animal book, uh, I had to read up a lot on rabies because when rabies was in there, I had to figure out how rabies, you know, infected people, how it moved through the body, what happened. Uh, because it's a social cultural phenomenon, but, also but it's a also a biological phenomenon. phenomenon. Yeah. Exactly. It can run away from the <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> or uh, another one is uh, how does a slaughterhouse, an mm-hmm. abattoir, Operate because there's an entire chapter on the abattoir, the development of abattoirs in Singapore. And you know, I don't know about <laughs> slaughtering an animal, uh, but I had to learn how you know what the process was, and, and particularly during the colonial era. And or another example would be the effects of biodiversity, you know, on uh, the deforestation of biodiversity. So the thing is, you do have to head over to the science faculty. And check out some books <laughs> and read those books and and also uh, contact people mm-hmm. at the institution. And, and people are, you know, interested in telling you what they work on or, you know, the, helping you if, if you ask politely. Mm-hmm. And, and people work. And so it, it helps when you go out and you just, uh, you, you admit, I don't know anything about mm-hmm. this. Explain Tell it to me. me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Explain, make, make an idiot like me understand it. And then hopefully I can uh, translate that so everyone can understand it uh, in, in the book. And so, and that's another reason I like environmental history is because it, it requires a range of disciplines. And we can't master all of them. But it requires us to read a variety of material and to understand a variety of material eventually so that you can create this story that breaks beyond the normal political, economic, kind of military mm-hmm. affairs that, that traditional history has focused on. Uh, I, I'm not a, a 
tremendous advocate of that. I'm, I'm not a good proponent of that mm-hmm. kind of history. It, nothing against it. It's just not my style. Your cup of tea. Yeah, and my cup of tea. It's not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, so one of the things that has happened in recent years is there's so much you know, attention to Singaporean history. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the bicentennial mm-hmm. and SU50 and, and, mm-hmm. and a lot of this has been highly political. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a sense, I mean, environmental history kind of occupies an almost kind of non-political space? I mean, do you think that's true or or do you think it makes an intervention? I think it's more subtle. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, To give you an example, you know, uh, there's been a lot over the last few years, there has been a lot of, of, uh, turmoil is too strong a word, but just kind of sniping back and Mm -hmm. forth in Singaporean historiography. And a lot of it revolves, frankly, around political issues. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, whether it be Operation Cold Store or, or the place of Lee Kuan Yew or the PAP in Singaporean history and society. And, and that uh, involves, there's a lot of pushback on both sides yes. uh, about everything from the use of sources to the uh, emphasis on uh, political figures of the party and you know, does the party equal Singapore and things like that. Now, my work itself doesn't deal with those issues in the sense of it's, it's not that I ignore Lee Kuan Yew or the PAP for that matter, but they're just not central to what I'm trying to argue. So when I am writing about, oh, the, the Imperial Creatures ends in 1942, so there shouldn't be any controversy in that regard. But in the Botanic Gardens book, I do bring it up to present up to the World Heritage, the achieving of the World Heritage status. And uh, in the, during the uh, uh, early uh, years of independence, the government clearly shifted the Botanic Gardens from a research facility to a park. Oh, interesting. And they, they clearly made, you know, took away a lot of this colonial scientific research, understandably so, in a newly independent society, and, and directed uh, scientists and information to things that were more related to uh, traditional development activities, whether it be industrialization, and, so, you know, and that's understandable. But they did de-emphasize the Botanic Gardens. It was a colonial institution. How does it fit into an independent nation-state? That's a difficult question to deal with uh, from the government you know, yes. uh, perspective. And so I had to write about them, about them, about the government, in a sense, lowering the status of the Botanic Gardens to a park, park. Uh, essentially, it, it, which is how, let's be honest, most Singaporeans view it. And, uh, but as long as you state your story and, and tell what's mm-hmm. going on, I don't see there's any problem. And I don't... This also doesn't question the government's status and how they came yeah. to power. Um, and so I've never had any pushback, mm-hmm. if you will, uh, on my own. Um, I've also, in the uh, Nature Contained book, the uh, one that has different chapters mm-hmm. by different people, there's a chapter I co-wrote with Corinne Heng on uh, the city in a garden. In other words, greening policies in Singapore, uh, or you know, the planting of trees and you know, bushes on the yeah. roadsides and and kind of how the government begins to equate itself with greenness and mm. uh, the very uh, lushness of Singapore, if you will. And uh, I've had positive feedback about that one. I haven't mm-hmm. had anything 
negative said about it. Now, does the government use its environmental policies to kind of promote its own image? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. But uh, I don't think I've pushed any buttons. I I don't try to avoid anything. It's just what I look at. It's not maybe what I write doesn't merit a response because it's not of any importance. I don't know. But uh, it, it seems that a lot of the pushback and forth is when it when it involves the very foundation mm-hmm. of political legitimacy, okay. and which is Operation Cold yeah. Store is part of that. It questions the political legitimacy mm-hmm. of the Singaporean government today. And I suppose I mean, environmental history, in a sense, kind of reminds us that this world outside politics. Yeah, there's a, I mean, exactly. The, the, the tiger and exactly. like, what well, doesn't care. If and if you think about it, if you, want to talk about, if you want to talk about the reduced biodiversity, you can blame that on the British, you know, on, <laughs> yes, on the yeah. imperial. Uh, you know, all the damage I'm talking about and the formations that I'm talking about, for the most part, is an imperial thing, mm-hmm. a colonial thing, which leads to the bicentennial. Okay. In the sense of, there's very few people who actually work on colonial Singapore. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the one thing. It's not that I went into it. I went into it because of I found these interesting sources in my own modules. There was an opening up of uh, resources and my own interest in it. But when you start working on colonial Singapore, you begin to realize there's nobody. I don't have anybody you know to kind of mm-hmm. sit around and chat about it uh, with. <coughs> I mean, uh, you had. For example, the works of Jim, James Warren, who did very good work on social history, uh, rickshaw coolies and prostitutes. Yeah. But a lot of the current research, particularly of young Singaporeans, takes place after 1945. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, that's fine. But if you have someone like a Lokasang or a Ho Chi Tin, uh, their work is focusing on different issues, but these are things that have happened since 1945. And, and these things do need to be studied. <laughs> Not against that. But it's the colonial era is a grossly understudied era mm-hmm. in Singaporean history. And I think some of that is because of this adherence to kind of political economic history mm-hmm. in which it's been written over and over again, raffles, whatever it may be, to the point that I find that extremely uninteresting. <laughs> and I think maybe students do too, or young scholars. And so hopefully through looking at some of these sources uh, environmentally, it could spur an interest in not only the environment, but just other approaches, new new approaches to that colonial material, which would, I would love. I guess that fits into the wider historiography of the British Empire. Yes. Uh, yeah. And, then, and it, it, it brings you also beyond Singapore mm-hmm. to larger global issues. Yes. So, for example, in the Imperial Creatures book, it has a lot to uh, runs parallel with development of imperial cities, mm-hmm. like whether it be Hong Kong, Calcutta, uh, you know, throughout the world, Batavia, in the sense of how does an, a new imperial power set up shop? <laughs> you know, how does it set up its business in that city, and what kind of transformation occurs through that? And 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 so. Hopefully, the book will be of interest to people not only who uh, study Singapore or study animals, but also study uh, uh, imperial urban centers. Yeah. Well, so for the animal lovers tuning in, <laughs> you have kind of two or three prize stories to okay, tell sure. about animals in Singapore. Sure. Uh, why not? <laughs> um, I would say the one that uh, shocks people the most uh, is the story of the introduction of rabies to Singapore. Okay. 
in which uh, rabies came to Singapore and uh, was originally introduced in 1884. And it was brought to Singapore by well-bred pet dogs. And uh, what happened was there was a ship called the Oxfordshire, which uh, arrived in, I believe it was April 1884, and brought these uh, well-bred dogs, poodles and terriers and such, ashore and auctioned them off. And so the well-to-do of society bought them. The problem was they had rabies. And these dogs then proceeded to bite all the local dogs, which were kind of just pariahs and mangy dogs. But these, these rabid dogs, or, I mean, the, yeah, these rabid dogs, these rabid pets, really, rabid terriers and poodles, were introduced the um, rabies to the society. And this led to the development of things such as dog registration, the requirement to have a collar, um, uh, control your dog, uh, laws related to the importation of dogs, quarantine for disease and such, which then was translated into various things for humans to try to limit people who came into Singapore who might have cholera, for example, or the bubonic plague. So so that started with dogs. Yeah, yeah, so rabies, yeah, yeah. Um, Another interesting fact, which uh, a lot of people uh, don't realize, and I was startled to find out myself, was in the 1930s, the uh, three most popular pets in Singapore uh, were, uh, number one was dog. Easily, uh, dogs were the most popular pet to own in Singapore. Oh, is there a reason for that? Um, well, dogs had always been in the society. Okay. Uh, the difference is they had become elite dogs, if you will. Mm-hmm. You know, a bred. You know, when we think of terriers or dotsons or the dogs we have today, bulldogs or poodles, people wanted those because they represented eugen. You know, those were only developed in the 19th century. They did not exist before the 19th century. And they were developed in England, and so it was a mark of your status if you could have a dog, a pet in your house. And then people also had the local strays and things like this. But dog, and, and they could provide not only companionship, they could be kind of lookouts or mm-hmm. guard dogs. They could you know, uh, provide small functions in the household, if you will. Uh, but the, the second and third most popular pets were songbirds ah. and monkeys. Monkeys, yes. really loud. Yes, and so uh, cats weren't on the list, uh, fish, mm-hmm. but it was uh, dogs, songbirds, and monkeys. monkeys. And so people would have a pet monkey, and oh. you could buy a macaque, or a, often from Java, called Java monkeys, and just keep it chained in your house or in your compound. And it was very common for people to have a pet monkey. And what's it kind of about monkeys being kind of a symbol of the exotic well, they're not only exotic, I think also by having it under your control mm-hmm. and chained up, you have, you're controlling the savage, if you will. Okay. Like kind of a savage manifestation of the you know, yeah. human. Of <laughs> or a colonial a, racial thinking. A colonial okay. racial thinking. Yeah, sure. Why not? Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> wow. So one final question. Mm-hmm. What do you think you'll be working on in 10 years' time? Oh, and t- well, I'm already working on my next book, which is on water and colonial Singapore. Oh, interesting. The basic question is, where did people get their drinking water? Mm-hmm. Okay, whether it be wells, whether it be a, a small reservoir at the foot of Fort Canning Hill, okay. 
which is what originally was uh, put there. Wells, the development of the reservoirs, whether it be McRitchie, Upper Lower Pierce, the, the reservoirs in Johor, even Medal Reservoir. And it will basically uh, survey how drinking water developed in Singapore up till 1959. Okay. Once again, I don't want to get involved. <laughs> Maybe that's me being cowardly. <laughs> but I, I really don't want to deal with all the... The water agreements. The water agreements okay. and the political nature, because that, to me, descends into... He said, she said, backbiting and... Mm-hmm. and uh, I'm more interested in the actual development of the facilities mm-hmm. and what it meant for the delivery of water, not who owes what. <laughs> and so, but uh, I imagine, and that developed out of when I was doing the animal book. You know, once again, when I finish one, I can kind of see, the see where the next one is like, I should look at this or I should look at that. And essentially, that's what has happened is the water developed out of that. Now, I can't say what's going to happen to the end of the water book, but I'm interested in uh, a variety of things. One of them is uh, an edited book on uh, animals since 1945. So the the Imperial Creatures is until 1942. So there should be a follow-up book from 42 to present, but maybe probably an edited book with different people contributing things, much like Nature Contained. I'm also interested in studying, I'll I'll use the phrase 1819, but what I really mean is kind of the Malay world or this area from about 1800 or 1780 to 1823. Ah, okay. And the idea would be to take a different chapter and each chapter would do a different perspective, whether it be a British perspective, a Dutch perspective, a Malay perspective, Chinese perspective of what's going on and how they see the different groups coming together. Um, up until Crawford signs mm-hmm. the agreement with the Temungong and the Sultan, which essentially gives the whole island to the British or the East India Company. That's another idea. <laughs> uh, there's also an idea of putting together a reader on durians. Durians? Yeah, durians. Yeah. So, but that's all hoping and wishing. Uh, the water one is... Definitely being okay. worked on. <laughs> I'm already, work, I'm already working on that one. Yeah, cover flora, fauna, and water. water. And it I, could be durian. We'll call yeah. it the trilogy of Singaporean environment. <laughs> yeah, flora, fauna, and water. Yeah. And after that, I got to move on to something else. So, and do you have a pet? No, I don't no, have any pets. Okay. No, no. Uh, good question. <laughs> no, uh, I don't have any pets. Uh, and I've never had a pet in Singapore. In America, at one time, I had a cat. Okay. And uh, when I was a child, I had a parakeet. But uh, in Singapore, I've never had a pet. My, uh, part of that is because my wife and I travel a lot. Mm-hmm. And I don't think it would be fair to another creature to abandon it every, you know, a uh, couple months for a few weeks. You know, I, uh, a songbird may be okay. <laughs> a songbird might work. Yeah, I, Not a dog. I take it over to friends or something like that. Yeah, yeah a dog or a cat, I, I wouldn't want under the conditions that uh, it just, I, I wouldn't be around enough to take care of it. You know, and that's not fair. All right. Thank you so much for being with us today, Tim. Okay, and thanks. To our listeners out there, thank you for tuning in. Okay. Yeah, yeah, thank you. <laughs> if you enjoyed this episode of Lecture Theatre, please leave a review on iTunes or share this with your friends. Till next time.